0: Welcome to another of the Pensioners for Independence podcasts and this one is brought to you by Edinburgh and Lothian's Pensioners for Indie group who have asked Dr Kirsty Hughes to speak to them. Kirsty Hughes is director and founder of the Scottish Centre on European Relations. She's a researcher, writer, commentator on European politics and policy policy. And she's worked at a number of leading European think tanks. She herself was based over in Brussels for some while. More recently, her research focus has been on the UK, Scotland and Brexit. And that features a lot in the podcast. She talks for about half an hour and then there's a very lively session of question and answers after that.
1: Good afternoon, and it's great to be talking to you all again, and I look forward to our discussion. So I'm only going to talk for about 20 minutes is is my aim. As Julia said, uh, we we agreed my topic just before Christmas. And of course, that's just a month and a half ago. But but there was so much uncertainty back then, if you remember all the sort of going to and fro to Brussels or virtual meetings or, or whatever. And of course, the deal wasn't done till just a few days before the new year. Um, So what I really want to do is talk briefly about where we are now. And then I want to say something about how the European Union and the different member states, how they now see the UK and Scotland. Um, And then I want to follow on from that with my sort of third main heading, if you like, for, for this talk on how an independent Scotland's prospects now look for potential accession to the European Union. Where are we now? Well, as you all know, we've got a deal. Um, As I just said, the deal came with almost no notice at all. Um, And we're now six weeks or less in. And even if you only pay a cursory attention to the the Brexit stories in in the papers, we we seem to be in a terrible mess. Um, Much of that mess is not at all surprising. Um, We've known for a long time that the Conservative government, even under Theresa May, and then more so under Boris Johnson, was heading for a hard Brexit. Um, But some of the sort of specificities, I think, of of what's happening and what was agreed um, just, just at the end of December is quite extraordinary and actually makes it an even harder Brexit than probably we all expected, and certainly people like me and many other trade experts and Brexit experts, you know, didn't didn't expect the business would and life would carry on as usual. Um, but but some 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 of the, I don't want to call them wrinkles because they're much more damaging and important to people's lives than than wrinkles, but some of the things that have have happened as a result of the deal already are quite extraordinary. So the deal, we spent a lot of time the media spent a lot of time in in the last year or more talking about deal or no deal and so yes it is a good thing that there's a deal rather than the no deal but if we look at what that deal does um, and how it wrenches us out of the eu's single market and customs union um it it's it's a very bad deal it's a very self-harming And and we knew already and just remembering that there's of course in a sense two parts to the deal. There's the Trade agreement that that came into force on the 1st of January And there is the prior withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson agreed in autumn 2019 and it's that withdrawal agreement that sets up the Northern Ireland protocol that is also already Causing many problems as as I'm sure you as I'm sure you know Um, So basically although the deal means, on the whole, it means no tariffs. The deal reintroduces, compared to what we had as members of the European Union and what we also had as our one-year transition period, it reintroduces a series of customs checks, VAT issues, and a whole range of regulatory barriers that tend to go under the heading non-tariff barriers. Um, And that can cover all sorts of things in terms of having to prove that that you meet the EU's health and safety criteria, that you meet their labelling criteria on products, um, that you meet their animal health, plant health, all these things go under the sanitary and phytosanitary label. Um, And all these things are actually causing an extraordinary amount of problem alongside the fact that, of course, There is no longer, suddenly, just in the last five to six weeks, there's no longer free movement of people. We don't have the right to just go and live in another EU member state for six months or a year. We certainly don't have the right to simply go and work there. And what we've seen is is the deal so far is impacting people from musicians to the fashion industry, to the car industry, to the fishing industry to the university sector and wider, Um, the the government chose, the UK government chose not to be part of the Erasmus student exchange scheme and and that's as you know I'm sure a wider scheme that also used to apply to people like apprentices and so on, Um, and that I think by the way was an entirely ideological choice by the UK government, they actually agreed and that's positive for the for the UK, including Scotland. They agreed to stay in the European Union's Horizon program, which is a pro- program of advanced research across a range of different subjects that British universities have been very prominent in. But so, on, if it was willing to do that, why wasn't it willing to to let the Erasmus student exchange program continue instead of setting up its own? so-called Turing program, which is meant to be global, but actually only one way. So it only takes students from the UK to other countries. Um, whereas Scotland benefited hugely up to now, both from having European students coming here and then getting to know Scotland, often staying for a, a time or longer um, to live and work here. So, so I think that was taken away for purely ideological reasons. Um, if there's any logic, driving Brexit, it is does seem to lie in, in this wish of the, the UK government and the, and the Tory party and Boris Johnson that we should be seen as global Britain, that, that we shouldn't acknowledge that we're on a European island off the continent of Europe, that our society, our culture, our values and our business, our businesses are deeply um, entwined with other European countries and were before we joined the European Union but became more so over the 47 years we were part of the European Union. Um, So I think that global Britain ideology impacted on on choices like leaving Erasmus. I, I don't know if any of you have applied for your global health insurance card yet. It replaces the card you used to get, the European health insurance card that allowed you. Um, to get some health treatment if, if you needed it unexpectedly when you were visiting a, another EU member member state, and the irony is that that this card only applies to EU member states, but it's been given this global name. It has a has a Union Jack on it uh, when when you get it, and again, it's just another example of of this extraordinary ideology. Now we we might not have to get too upset about the Tories having a an absurd global ideology if it wasn't actually impacting across the board on all these different sectors and many others that I've, that I've already mentioned. And, and some of it seems to have come as a surprise to the Tories. Um, the, the fact that there are especially a, a lot of problems in, in the fishing sector, in the seafood sector, the shellfish sector, that the EU third country rules make it a, a problem to export live shellfish or some of them actually Cannot be uh, exported and others of them require, like other products, extraordinary amounts of bureaucracy, customs forms, veterinary checks, um, and so on and so forth. And, and the point here is that some of these rules are actually tougher for the UK than, say, New Zealand has with the European Union. And why is that? Well, that's because that's what the UK government agreed. It agreed not to align with the EU animal and plant health and safety standards. And so it made a series of choices that made the border harder and made the impact harder. And I think you know, I think there was quite a lot of discussion since the COVID pandemic started as to whether somehow the impacts of Brexit, because that's what we're talking about, the impact of Brexit of leaving the customs union and single market would somehow be hidden by the impact on the economy and people's lives of COVID. And I think at one level that's not happening, and it's good because we want people to see what the real impact is. You know, when, when you listen to stories about West Coast of Scotland, fisher communities, or, or when you talk, listen to musicians or hear what they have to say on, on Twitter or on TV or, or radio, it's very clear what they're talking about is nothing to do with COVID and is everything to do with Brexit, but I think there is a real problem here, because I think, because the news is so focused on COVID, this extraordinary damage to the UK economy, or I should actually say the British economy, because Northern Ireland has obviously got its own separate protocol, but this extraordinary damage is a direct result of upending half a century of economic relationships. and, and and I think in the absence of COVID, this would be leading the news a lot more than it is at the moment. It's not helped, I think, by the fact that Keir Starmer as leader of the Labour Party has chosen to play it extremely cautiously, um, you might say cowardly, uh, in terms of calling, calling this out. One of the shadow cabinet called a week or two back for more customs officers. I don't, I don't think you know, in the face of this mounting damage, even in, even in just a few weeks, but to say the answer is we need more customs officers is extraordinary. And, and of course, one of the things we, we see now with the, with the particular problems with the operation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, because, as you know, as part of the withdrawal agreement, the one in twenty autumn 2019, Boris Johnson, instead of doing what Theresa May had done and saying, well, for an indefinite period, the whole of the UK would stay in the EU's customs union, He said, ideologically, that clearly didn't work for for the Tories. And so, he agreed a deal that would keep Northern Ireland, as you know, in the single market for goods, Um, and sort of in the EU's customs union at the same time as being in the UK's one. And so, he fragmented, deliberately fragmented, the UK single market and put a border and a barrier down the Irish Sea. And of course, what, what we see in the row that has ensued in the, in the last few weeks is there are a lot of problems with, with goods, and especially with fresh meat and, and things like that going to Northern Ireland from Britain. And we see the Tories lying and lying and lying again. And we've seen Boris Johnson do it again and say there wasn't a border or there isn't a border, but there, there was always going to be a border. Um, so we haven't moved on from fake news and lies about Brexit. And I, I think we're now moving into a different phase already, where instead of saying this was a great deal we negotiated, um Michael Gove and Boris Johnson are basically saying this is the EU's halt. These are kind of EU rules. Well, that this is a joint agreement. And and yes, the EU got it very wrong uh, two weeks ago, week and a half ago, when it when it tried to trigger the emergency clause in the Northern Ireland Protocol to not allow exports of of vaccines to go from Ireland across the open Irish border. Um, But as as you know, again, the the EU got that wrong. They backtracked within a few hours. Um, And yet somehow Gove and Johnson are trying to use this to say the fact that the Northern Irish Protocol creates this internal border is, is the EU's fault. An irony of ironies, they've also said, Michael Gove wrote a letter a couple of days ago, um, well, Tuesday, so last week, um, to the EU, saying that they wanted some, some of the new checks and bureaucracy between Britain and Northern Ireland to, to not be implemented for two years. Two years, a transition period. The, the Conservative government could last June have asked to extend the transition period for the whole of the UK for all sectors for two years. Um, And they refused to, which is why, again, also, it's why the the Tory rhetoric that we see towards the Scottish government saying, how dare the Scottish government even mention independence when there's a pandemic going on? But the Tories didn't extend the Brexit transition when there's a pandemic going on. They agreed a free trade deal, not with six months to go with some time to prepare for it. They agreed it with six days to go. So, So I think if anybody hoped, That there might be a bit of a reset that that there would be any chance for our politics to be a bit more honest or positive or a reset for the eu uk relationship once there was a trade deal i'm afraid that's looking that's looking um unlikely is there is there is there possibly something good in that for scotland and 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 for the push for independence is it that the the more the EU and UK don't get on, the more sympathy there is for Scotland. Um, perhaps up to a point. But uh, I, I think in, in general it's actually in Scotland's interests that this very bad deal can at least be made to function, that things calm down, that in our rather challenging and unstable world, looking around the whole world, it would be better if the EU and UK got on. Um, but that's, that's certainly not what we see at the moment. Um, let me just say a little bit about how I think the EU does look at the UK and Scotland now. I did actually wrote a paper on this that came out at the start of December. And that paper was based on talking to people in almost half the EU member states um, and in Brussels, a range of diplomats, journalists, academics, think tankers, um, people who are very much watching these issues. Um, And let me start with what they told me about their view view of the UK, and you can imagine that maybe that's not a very positive view. But what I think was very interesting and worth saying first is that most of the people I talked to started by saying how positive on the whole, in many ways, the UK was for their country when it was a member of the European Union. They talked about how influential it was, and they talked about, I mean, I talked to someone in Prague and they, they were very positive about how the UK had been on their side vis-a-vis EU-Russia relations. Or you talk to someone in The Hague in the Netherlands and they might talk about how they very much agreed with UK policies on free trade. Um, or you talk to people in general and they say, well, perhaps the UK didn't quite have the level of influence that France and Germany acting together did. But because the UK was the third biggest country alongside those two in the EU, it it helped to balance out the potential power of the Franco-German relationship. And and that's one of the many knock-on effects onto the EU that's been happening. That the smaller countries in the EU are now saying it's changed the power balance. I mean, that's maybe a topic for a whole other session, but I I think it's worth mentioning. Having said that, um, attitudes to the UK are very negative on, on the whole. Um, the, the UK, or rather its government, is seen as untrustworthy. Um, the UK's reputation is seen as being extremely badly damaged by the last four and a half years. The UK's influence has been damaged by the UK itself and by the choices it's taken. And a, a lot of times people use the same word, baffled. They said we're baffled at, at what the UK has done to itself, and where has the professional and pragmatic UK gone? And yet, despite all that, um, people were keen that there should be a reset, that that there should be a deal, and that if there was a deal, that might open the way to a more positive relationship in the future, less Brussels blaming from London, more cooperation perhaps on foreign policy, on climate change, on security. At the moment, of course, if there's rows going on about Northern Ireland and about fisheries, that's probably not going to happen. And it's also not going to happen because at the moment we see the UK government very much, as I said at the start of this talk, trying to present itself as this global player. It it refused to have a structured relationship with the EU on foreign policy, much as the EU 27 would have liked it. So so I I think... um, the new relationship has started rather, rather badly. Um, and I think it's disappointing, if not surprising, that it's taken us back to that, that thing of London blaming Brussels for its own decisions. And, and that doesn't help build a constructive relationship. Well, where, where does, maybe I'll take another five minutes now to, to say um, more about where Scotland um, sits amidst all this. I think, um, There's a very positive attitude on hold towards Scotland. There's a very sympathetic attitude to Scotland. People are very, very aware um, that Scotland voted Remain, that that Scotland wanted at the very least a softer Brexit, that Scotland did not want to leave the Erasmus programme. And and it's interesting to see some of the members of the European Parliament do what they can to reach out to pro-Europeans in Scotland and also rest of the uk there as one german mep put it to me recently she said well you know it's one thing our relationship with the uk government but it's another our relationship with uk citizens uh, and with scottish citizens and and we try we want to try and keep those relationships with with citizens um, in the uk and the eu is meant to be launching a big future of europe conference a debate about strategies, democracy, what to do um, in terms of the big global picture next with the EU. And there are some people like Terry Ranke, a German Green MEP, who who want to see if they can find ways for us to get involved still. Um, Having said that, if you ask people about potential Scottish independence, um, I think the responses tend to, t- tend to fall into two, two parts. On the one hand, the idea of the UK fragmenting, people are, people are perfectly aware of that as a possibility. Some see it as more likely than others. Um, I don't find it surprising that on the whole, most people don't say, oh, we think it'd be great if the UK fell apart, uh, or if the UK fragmented. Um, you know, people are used to the UK being there. They're used to it being uh, uh, an influential state in in Europe. It, it's had a big historical role. Um, so at the same time, there's a bit of fascination about that. It, it, it's sort of, oh, well, if that happened, what would England and Wales be called? What sort of state would England and Wales be? So, so, so you get a mixture of responses. And, and I think mixed into that is that obviously the UK has been a nuisance. It's been a, a real problem and damaging to the EU in the last four and a half years since the Brexit vote. So people aren't sort of looking forward to potentially more instability, if that's what the UK fragmenting might mean. Um, having said that, the second part of the response, I think, is if I put to people the scenario that there is an independent Scotland, a legally and constitutionally valid process that, creates an independent Scotland, a 5 million strong country, applying to join the European Union, then there's a fairly positive and or pragmatic approach to that. If the UK does fragment and there's Scotland, a small North European country, been in the EU for 47 years, been a democracy for a long time, had a, a social market economy for a long time, then the basic response is positive, and, and, and why wouldn't it be? And and given that, as you know, there's an accession process um, towards the West Balkans at the moment, uh, uh, one that's been moving fairly slowly and is quite tricky for reasons connected to the political and economic and security history of those countries, then it's also quite common to hear people say on or off the record that, that if Scotland went independent soon, it, it might even leapfrog those countries in terms of how fast it could join the European Union. Um, let me just say another couple of things about, about Scotland's EU accession prospects. I, I think I talked quite a lot about that when, when I last met with you all. Um, so that, that was the general picture. So in general, I think an independent Scotland would, would be welcome. It would be seen as relatively straightforward. Um, a lot of the time, the debate about independence gets, then gets stuck on the currency questions and the deficit questions. On the deficit question, EU rules still say that member states should have a, a budget deficit under 3%, but that has also been suspended at the moment because of the COVID crisis and, and what that's done to debt and deficit levels as, as governments scramble to, to, to ameliorate the economic effect. And that has triggered quite a lot of debate about whether it's realistic to go back to these limits, these limits that are currently suspended. So I, I think there is an interesting question there um, about if, if we're on the cusp of perhaps perhaps some change in that. I don't think that means that the EU will simply agree that it doesn't mind what deficit or debt levels are, but, but we may be heading into a period of more flexibility. Um, On the currency issue, and I've I've mentioned this on and off in in some of my recent articles and comment pieces, um, there is no real precedent, um, if an independent Scotland was still using the pound, for an accession country, a candidate country to the EU to join um, using the currency of a state that isn't a member state of the EU. And it would make it difficult, if not impossible, while that was happening, for Scotland to meet some of the EU's criteria. For instance, um, treating its exchange rate with the eurozone, assuming it joined but wasn't in the euro, as a matter of common concern. Well, it it couldn't control the pound exchange rate if if the pound was being managed from London. Does that mean Scotland must have introduced its own currency before it could join the European Union? I think that's an open question, and I think it's a political question because this is unprecedented. So I think, um, imagine if Scotland had been independent for for three or four years, it was using the pound, um, it had been negotiating its EU accession, and maybe it had a plan for in two years' time to switch to its own currency. I don't think the EU would necessarily say, Well, you can't join for two years if everything else was ready if scotland met all the other criteria for joining the eu it's it's quite possible it's conceivable that there could be a two-year transition period within the european union but i can't say that definitively yes or no because in the end it would be a political judgment for the member states who it's not just a technical assessment by the european commission last but not least let me say something about border issues, and I imagine people may want to pick this up um, in in the Q&A, if an independent Scotland was in the European Union, then the Scottish-English border would be an external border of the European Union. Hopefully, that would be ameliorated by the fact that, that like Ireland and independent Scotland, could join the common travel area and be part of that with the rest of the UK and Ireland so that at least there would be that would actually be a win-win there would be free movement of people with the UK and with the European Union but otherwise that border will be quite a hard border in the sense that I described at the start of my talk so especially for goods there unless things are eased in the next few years or unless another more pro-European government comes in and negotiates something that brings the UK closer to the EU again, that border is going to have a lot of bureaucracy and problems around, around goods. Um, what I didn't say so much about at the start of my talk, and I must come to a conclusion now, I, I've talked more than I said I would, um, is services. The, the UK-EU deal, is a very bad one for services, and the UK and the Scottish economies are both very dependent on services. There there isn't good access, and they're waiting uh, for some so-called equivalence decision on financial services. But a lot of what now happens with services has to be bilaterally negotiated with the EU 27 member states um, to, to gain access to each state. What I wonder, but I think this needs more detailed work done on it, if Scotland's gonna be an independent state in the EU, then it could have bilateral discussions with the rest of the UK about Scottish English services being traded to and fro where, where that wasn't already covered by an, an EU agreement on services and trade, trade in services. So I think the border is challenging. It will have some negative economic effects, but they will be balanced out we could argue or discuss how much they'll be balanced out by being back in the European Union, by perhaps being seen as more open, I think, more, more, more um, positive place to come for foreign direct investment by the benefits of migration. And, and that study that was in the news last week, the LSE study, um, which, which estimated the border as being highly negative in that scenario, didn't take accountable all these things. Um, And, of course, because of the Northern Ireland Protocol, actually, if both Scotland and Northern Ireland were in the single market for goods, then actually that bit of the the border within the UK would, or the old UK, would would get easier again. Um, So I think, just in conclusion, I think in many ways, despite all the difficulties, all the problems of Brexit, and there's a limited amount that can be done, for Scotland now and the Scottish government now to limit that damage from Brexit. But there is opportunities to really build our relationships with Europe, not just to let them be damaged by Brexit. People understand that Scotland didn't choose Brexit. They understand that we're on an island that's a European island, we're a European country. So I think we have to also build on those possibilities at the moment as well as deal with the damage of Brexit. So thank you very much, and I'm sorry if I've talked for too long.
2: No, Kirsty, you have not talked for too long. That was uh, really enjoyable. Now I'm going to hand over to Daniel, and he's going to go for the questions. Thank you.
3: Just give these to you, Kirsty, one at a time, and Uh you can see whatever you like about them. Pippa asks, um, can you explain more what is Article 16, and what is Westminster's aim in now indicating that it wishes to invoke it?
1: So Article 16, I don't have it in front of me, but it, but it basically says in, in a kind of emergency where there, there's grave risk of economic, you know, deep economic and social disruption, this article can be invoked, but it's meant to be invoked um, through discussion with your partner, whether it's the EU or the UK invoking it. So, so it's meant to be invoked through a process of discussion, um, preferably First, you talk and see if you can find ways not to invoke it, uh, and then even if you do invoke it, you're looking for ways to, to be able to go back to the normal operation of, of the protocol. Um, so I think, you know, I think it was quite extraordinary. I think it, I think it's understandable at one level. You know, you know, the whole COVID pandemic and the stress of you know, coming through this current current wave um, affecting so many EU member states very badly, just as it's affecting us very badly. Um, and the, the Commission obviously mishandled it. They were in a panic about not getting the vaccines they thought they were about to get. They, they developed a general control regulation for, for exports of the vaccines so they'd know what was going on. And somebody put in this triggering of, of Article 16, so, so that it would apply between Ireland and Northern Ireland, and there, there wouldn't be a, a potential backdoor route um, into the UK. This wasn't only aimed at the UK, I should say, although there was about 100 countries in the Commission's regulation that it didn't apply to, but it applied to the UK, the US, to Japan. But as I said in my talk, it, it only applied for a few hours before, before it was taken off the website and, and didn't go through and, and uh, there have been a lot of internal ramifications from that. The Irish um, were clearly in the Irish Taoiseach were appalled and didn't know how that could have happened. And then you see the UK government and Johnson and Gove exploiting the fact that that happened for a few hours and saying somehow this proves that all these other things, we can't export fresh British sausages, English and Scottish sausages to Northern Ireland, um, you know, we've got all sorts of other problems that, as I said, come from the sort of agreement they did in in, in the withdrawal agreement and the trade deal, um, and they're threatening. Well, they were threatening to do it in reverse, but what they now seem to be doing is is instead um, asking for for simplifications, changes, are, are asking for these two-year sort of grace periods. Because what I sh- what I also didn't mention, I think, is is that there's a couple of three and six month grace periods in the Northern Ireland application of the Northern Ireland protocol. So, if this is bad, I'm afraid it is actually going to get worse because there is going to be more checks. And so, Michael Gove has been asking that, say, the three month grace period on some of the food controls should be extended for two years. But because he wrote his letter to Brussels last week, in a tone that somehow suggested that this few hours of the Commission getting it wrong on Article 16 and getting upset about vaccines, as if somehow that was the fault. And so some of the reporting on how Brussels and the the member states responding to Gove's letter is, is very badly is the answer. And it's not that the request is necessarily so problematic, but it, if you don't have good relations and you have this continuation of, of what I described, you, you know, uh, Britain blaming the EU for an agreement it chose, um, then managing that is very difficult. And this is, you know, and we all know this is this is very serious politics, and this is the as well as economics. This is the peace process as well as well as people's livelihoods. So I think this is potentially very serious and. Whereas actually on that evening when the Commission got it wrong, I I was very surprised. I was waiting for Chancellor and Gove to overreact and they didn't immediately overreact. In fact, they tried to calm things down a little bit on vaccines, but it didn't take very long after that for them to then turn it into this new problem.
3: Salma says we won't get frictionless trade easily. Border questions, trade questions between Indy Scotland and the UK will need to be countered. And the question thrown at you is, what are our arguments on this?
1: Mm, mm, sure. Um, I think, yeah, The border, I don't think the border issues are, are simple uh, and they can't just be uh, avoided or, or denied. Um, there is always going to be, um, coming from the Tories at least, um, an answer to begin with of hypocrisy, because given the, the Tory government has put this border between the Britain and the EU. It's put a, a specific half and half border between Britain and Northern Ireland, as as you probably know or remember. There's there's also a, a sort of a border into Kent because lorries freight traffic going into Kent have to have a Kent access permit before before they can go in there. Um, so Brexit has put borders in all over the place, so to then say Scotland shouldn't put a border in, and shouldn't rejoin the EU, is inconsistent and hypocritical in terms of Brexiter logic. Um, that obviously only takes the pro-independence argument so far, um, and, and, unless, and obviously there are some people on the independent side who who don't want to stay in the EU or even the Euro- European economic area, but but most people in Scotland, pro and anti-Indy, want, want to stay in the European Union. So so we can't simply answer on the border questions, well, it's hypocrisy and that's it. Because we can't say, look, Brexit's really bad for the UK economy, including the Scottish economy, and then we're not going to worry about borders for the Scottish-English border. Um, what I would like to see, I when this that's, you may have seen these news reports of of this LSE study last week, and, and and somebody had said it meant that everybody would be two and a half thousand pounds a year or worse off, or something something like that. And I saw various calls for well, where's the rebuttal and who who you know who is our rebuttal unit and where's where's the rebuttal? Um, I think we need something more than just rebuttal, because I think we need to be able to say yes, we need to estimate the costs of putting a border between Scotland and England, yes, we'd rather England and the rest of the UK had stayed in the European Union, and because it hasn't, given we now know the trade and cooperation agreement, we ought to be able to to do an economic estimate of the the costs of the border. Um, Some of that particular LSE study assumed what some of those costs were uh, from, from the beginning, so you know, you can critique particular studies, but rather than just rebutting them, I think I think you need uh, some economic studies of different scenarios. Because yes, Scotland trades more with England than it does with the European Union—about um, three times more at the moment. I mean, the statistics are far from perfect, but anyway, that's an order of magnitude. Um, and, and that's only about half, half of Scotland's external trade goes to the EU, and the other half goes to the rest of the world, though some of it's still in Europe, just not in, not in the EU. But I think if Scotland was in the European Union, I think it would be a very attractive base for foreign direct investment. A lot of American investment came into the UK down the decades because of um, being close to and then in the European Union and being in an English-language-speaking country. So I think Scotland would have that advantage. Um, skilled population and with free movement again and and EU citizens able not just to stay here but to come here would be beneficial so can we get some realistic estimates or different scenarios of what that would look like can we get some estimates of what i call the the win-win there's not many win-wins around brexit but there's this idea that we could get free movement in the eu of people and free movement in the uk um, is another surely another economic win-win. Um, what is the overarching industrial strategy and economic strategy and green strategy for the first five years and the first fifteen years of independence? How much might trade shift? How much does it have to shift to be able to say here's some positive economic benefits? And, and also going back to what I briefly said in the the talk about services, there will be some barriers to services trade between. The UK the rest of the UK and an independent Scotland some of those issues will be managed at EU level and and Scotland will have a voice in that but some of those will be managed bilaterally which of those given the current agreement will will be and could be managed bilaterally what's the economic value of that so in a sense what I'm setting out here is I mean, I, I started my career as an economist but then I moved into doing more political analysis of europe so i'm not volunteering to do this but but you know that's how you would set out an economic study um and i i've not seen that i've not seen that done and i think you know when i used to say this i I, i've banged on on and off for the last four years about borders as an impact of brexit and some people would say to me oh well kirsty it's fair enough that the SNP doesn't really look at this until we know what sort of trade deal. Because obviously if we'd done a trade deal of staying in the single market, the economic impact would have been much less than the sort of trade deal we have now. But we do have this trade deal now. And so I think in terms of, there are answers back, but I think they'd be much more persuasive if there, if there was some more serious public domain work from the pro independent mm-hmm. side. And from the SNP itself, it needs to come, I think. Okay. So,
2: so how, how quickly should that work be done, Kirsty? Should it be in place in the next? Should it be done before our um, election, or should it be done in the?
1: You know, I, I hear, I hear um, from different sources that there is, there are policy papers that haven't been released yet. One, as I understand it, on EU accession, and one more broadly on the economy. And I, I don't have any specific. Uh, roots in or knowledge of what, what sort of SNP or Scottish government thinking is on whether to release those as part of the election campaign mm-hmm. or not. Um, but I think, I think if those papers are there, they should be released. And I think if, if that paper doesn't include an estimate of, of the borders, then I, I think, yeah, there should, there, there should be some first estimates done. I mean, this is going to be an election about independence. Um, and therefore, we need, um, in the context of Brexit, so we so we do need some some more analysis, yes. Um, but I'm also surprised. I mean, I've said the SP should do this, or, uh, but you know, I'm surprised there aren't more academic and university estimates of this. I mean, there may be some I've missed, but it seems to have been something that's been a bit absent. And when you look at what happened with Brexit, you had all sorts of different economists from different universities here and in the EU. Estimating what the impact on trading goods and services would be, and they did vary. I mean, they they pretty much all found it as a negative impact, but but they varied quite a lot in their assumptions and their results, and whether they took account of productivity and foreign investment. So, mm. so I think if we're being serious, we have to do that for Scotland too. Yeah.
3: Thank you for that. That's great. Um, um, Pippa asks: Is there any way the Scottish government could just work with the EU directly, whether that be right now or just just mm. after, prior to a referendum? Your thoughts?
1: I mean, I think I think the Scottish government already does uh, does try and have good communication with the European union i was actually speaking on a, a panel with alan smith a, a week ago and he was talking about his contacts with different eu embassies and diplomats and and so on i i noticed at the start of the year that nicholas sturgeon had written a, a column about independence in the eu and it was published in various european outlets and and there are scottish government so-called hubs in in Dublin, in Paris, in Berlin, there was talk a year ago about opening another one, possibly in an Nordic country, and that doesn't seem to have happened. So I don't know. I don't know what happened with that. Um, so I think that you know there is communication, and pre-pandemic there was a certain amount of travel and meeting with ministers, and and some of that travel and meetings was quite interesting. Um, Given that Nicola Sturgeon is first minister, but not head of state, because Scotland's not currently a state, nonetheless, there were some quite positive signals by which minister she met in Berlin and that sort of thing that were meant to not too much offend the UK government, but at the same time, show, show that there was a certain friendly attitude to Scotland. Um, I actually wrote a, a column that was in the National yesterday saying, saying um, in a sense you could say it's an answer to your question, but you know, saying that there is more that could be done now because there, there is a lot already going on in Europe and there's this attempt to see if there's any way Scotland could stay in or rejoin Erasmus, it, it doesn't look likely, but they, they've still not quite, quite given up. Um, we've got the climate the big climate summit coming to glasgow in november and again it's a global summit the uk government is the host but nonetheless there will be a lot the scottish government can do and and i'm sure is planning to do but what i what i argued in my article yesterday was that i think the scottish government should be intensifying contacts with the eu member states okay it doesn't have huge amount of resources and it doesn't have a foreign office but for instance you know when i i did a paper earlier last year on small states in the european union and and how they work together to have voice and influence and they may specialize in particular areas so that people would often refer me to denmark and sweden on climate issues as being kind of leaders or or important voices on on those issues so we shouldn't overestimate what scotland can do it's outside the eu it's not an independent state but actually you know scotland has a lot to say on climate and if it went in for some more what you might call para diplomacy of trying to talk to more to the danes or the swedes on these issues then then it can try and amplify its its influence and its voice by working by working with others but i i think Having said that, I think that's... that's a sort of diplomacy, but it's not... You, you can't pretend you're a state if you're not a state. So you can't go and have negotiations where you're not allowed to have negotiations where the EU can only recognise third-country states. Um, but the other part of the question was, what, what about pre-referendum? Um, I'm more interested in what about post-referendum, to be honest. I mean, I, I think I think what you'll find pre-referendum is that the EU governments will in general be neutral. They'll say we can't interfere in a third country's constitutional processes. But I think, as we've seen already in the last couple of years, I think um, there will be more willingness to say any european state can apply to join the european union that if scotland was independent of course it would be eligible to join the european union we saw donald tusk the, the former european council president say that uh, was it one or two years years ago it's easier to say things when you're, you're no longer in your in your official position but i think when it, why i said it's interesting after a referendum it, assuming a yes vote is Normally what you would expect to happen after a yes vote is that there's talks between the UK government and and the the Scottish government uh, about the divorce, just as we saw with Brexit in a sense. You know, you've got to have a sustained discussion um, uh, over your future relationship and ending the current relationship. And normally you might expect the EU to stand back from that and say, you sort that out, you come to your agreement, London recognises independent Scotland, then the rest of us arrive. But I think if you think about it, that gets that gets a bit tricky because if, if you did agree between London and Edinburgh and, and you had your independence day was, was going to be, you know, 1st of January 2025 or, or whatever, if you haven't already talked to the EU, what happens on that 1st of January? Because the deal the EU had with the UK no longer applies to the whole of the territory of what was the UK. And the deal on fish that has proved so problematic, unsurprisingly to those of us watching, well, it, it won't apply to all, all of the UK's territorial waters because they'll no longer be all of the UK. Some of those will be Scottish territorial waters. So, so there's going to have to be something in place for that first day of Scottish independence that works for Scotland, the rest of the UK and the EU. And I I don't think this means you can leapfrog. I don't think this means that there's any way at all of suddenly being back in the single market or the EU on day one. But actually, I think there may have to be three-way talks at at some point. And I I think there's another area that needs a lot more discussion and consideration about these transitions, transition out of the UK into the EU and, and that particular trend. You know, it's going to have quite a big impact, that deal that's just... Just been done five weeks ago is going to have to change. Um, and that's very, I think that's actually a very interesting topic in, in itself.
3: Thank you, Kirsty. I was just thinking of the fun we could have, not us personally, but our diplomats talking to the rump of the UK Parliament and the EU at the same time. Look at the opportunities for creating mischief. <laughs> again i sure wouldn't
1: do that <laughs>
3: oh, 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 oh of course not no no no, no. Uh, to go back to, to to comments from from other people uh tony young ha- has made two comments on uh on this question of um deficit uh, and she says and i think we'd agree that the deficit is a uk uh, construct as part of the jers figure. And an independent Scotland would probably would probably not take on a share of the UK deficit of debt. Uh, and Tony's making reference here to a lot of the analysis worth that uh, Richard Murphy does, which you are probably aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, also, she says a nation with its own currency may need to run a deficit. Again, reference Richard Murphy and Tim Rideout. Any thoughts on that? Or shall we just jump on to the next one? Uh,
1: um... I think um, I think what what's difficult from from the statistics and from the different scenarios is is indeed to to agree in order to have the discussion and the debate, to to agree what the likely deficit is of a future independent Scotland. You know that that's the question. What are the actual figures? What would the economic prospects and situation of an independent Scotland look like for the first year and the five years? and 10 years Um, and and i actually i think that the question about not taking on a share of the debt or or deficit there are obviously different views on that at one level it might seem it might seem reasonable to take on a share a population share or you might argue well no because we think you spent it on the wrong things or because we're a new state and you you should help us as a decent global citizen, I think, I think what adds to those arguments now um, is obviously COVID, you know, because the debt has shot, shot up, um, mm. quite rightly, because, you know, quite rightly, you need to try and support support your economy in this extraordinary crisis. Yeah. Um, is an independent Scotland going to take on some share of that? Um, so, I mean, that, that's, you know, an open political question, but I think um, I think it's not realistic. Even if you weren't going to join the European Union, it's not realistic um, to just say you can you can run a deficit of any size, um, and that you, you run it by printing Scottish pounds. Um, I think that I think that's a, a route to probably a route to inflation, and I, th- I think the idea that that Scotland can just be uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to put it. You know, it, 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 it's not just a, well. It tends to be associated with the left. Can you just have socialism in one country and not be in the European Economic Area and not be in the European Union and uh, spend all you like because you keep you keep printing all the pounds you want and not worry about how all the other economies in the world are behaving, how international financial markets behave, or what EU criteria are? I don't. I don't think that's sensible either so I, I think we have to have I, I don't think it i don't think it's just richard murphy versus andrew wilson i think there are other intermediate positions on that i'm i'm probably more of a more of a keynesian myself but i am I'm, I'm a keynesian who doesn't think despite COVID, that there is simply a um a magic money tree um, i think you know if you if you look around the european union you've had all sorts of countries join. Um, Some of them were long-standing countries that had come out of dictatorship, Greece or Spain. Some of them were countries that had been states and then absorbed into the Soviet Union and then regained their independence. So, you know, Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania. Some, like the former Czechoslovakia, split into two states and they came in with different types of economy and levels of economic problems and the need to establish themselves as a state. So I think at one level, there is a lot of experience in the EU, as well as obviously UN level, of how you establish a new state, how you establish a currency, what sort of transitions you may need, what sort of support you may need. Um, And I I think it's perfectly perfectly feasible to establish a Scottish currency faster if you wanted to. Mm. Um, But I think you've got to be realistic about you know, do you want to join the European Union or not? Um, I, I know some some people say, well, let's just join the European Economic Area. Um, personally, I think that would be a very odd thing to do, because, because you'd be saying, we're a newly independent state, we've got self-determination, but now we're going to let the EU set all our rules and everything else, and we're just going to have them applied to us, like in Norway and Iceland. And I do rather wonder if, if Norway had succeeded in its initial aim in joining the EU, if people would be so keen on that option, if it was only Iceland and and Liechtenstein. That's another, sorry, I've probably taken too long to answer that, there's another seminar (laughs) in that one as well. Um,
3: Marlene makes comment about EFTA. You've you've mentioned EEA and EFTA, of course, an an interim stage there. Uh, And seeing that might be good for us uh, pragmatically to let us get on with the work to post-Indy. Uh, and maybe it would help some less pro-EU Scots to vote yes in an independent referendum. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we would be accepted by the EFTA countries if we asked to join as a newly independent state?
1: Um, I, I think there's a lot of confusion about EFTA and the European economic area. So mm. EFTA, EFTA has four members, um, the European Free Trade Association. It's got Norway, Switzerland... Iceland and, and Liechtenstein, and it's up to those four countries um, who comes in. Um, but that does not give you access to the, to the EU single market. It just means you're, you're part of a, a, a small trade body that tries to do a certain number of joint, joint trade agreements. Um, the European Economic Area has three of those countries in it, but not the Swiss. And it has all 27 of the EU member states in it. So there are actually 30 members in the European Economic Area. And the European Economic Area is basically the EU single market, but not its Customs Union and not its agriculture and fish. Um, So they would all have to agree. And also, would Scotland meet all the single market criteria? In that sense, it's no different to joining the EU. You'd have to get agreement and you'd have to meet the criteria. And so... I don't particularly see that as as easier for an independent Scotland. And what what would normally happen um, if Scotland wanted to rejoin the EU is that in the time when the talks would be going on, there there would be a a Scotland-EU association agreement that, that would start in advance of that to reduce trade barriers, to increase cooperation, and it would be tailored specifically to Scotland rather than going through the EA. And then lastly, on this question of, would it help people who, who might be anti EU but pro ea to vote yes? I mean, the way, I, there's different ways of doing that. There's no, there's no one right answer to that. But I mean, I personally, if I, you know, if I was a politician, I would be arguing for doing what, what all the Central and East European countries did. And what they did was to, uh, I guess, they had elections, that was their aim. They elected parties who said they wanted to join the EU, they negotiated to join the EU, and then they took it to a referendum so you, and and of course and they all said yes but the norwegians did that too and the norwegians said no so so i don't think it's just it's not just some sort of cop-out you know if you want to say to people look most people in scotland at the moment want to join the eu but after independence when they look at the border issues with england or or the deficit issues or other arguments about the eu and the and the euro they would have a choice, so that you don't have to think in voting yes to Indy that you're voting yes to the EU if there's going to be a future referendum. And and people say, oh, how many referendums are we going to have? But I, you know, that would be three or four years down, down the line. And that would be absolutely normal behaviour for a European country trying to join the EU. So so I know there are people arguing that we could join the EEA and that we must split the EU argument from the Indy argument. I personally, I I don't agree with that, and and I think if you. But if you want to split it to some extent, you do by the fact that you could have a referendum later.
3: Um, Marlene goes back to the question of Erasmus. Is there any way that we in Scotland can rejoin Erasmus while still in the UK? I think you may have spoken about mm. that already. Mm. Would we? Are we likely to get help? I know we're working with the Welsh Government on this, and I know that Westminster set its cap firmly against it. Mm. But is there any chance that we could persuade the Irish Government to actually piling on our side, and just because they like causing England problems anyway, so Sponsoring so, the Scots Sponsor, sponsor a, a fellow Celt you
1: know? um, I think uh, well, discussions are ongoing as I understand it with Brussels um, mm. but Brussels um, uh, spokespeople have come out a couple of times recently to say in general, uh, it's a country that's part of Erasmus and it's not mm. part of a country that's part of Erasmus Um, I I don't know what the details of the conversations are at present, but I suspect they're about if the UK government rejoined, could it, which of course it said it's not going to, could it rejoin so it was only Scotland and Wales that took part? Um, I don't know if the Commission would say that was possible, um, but I think it would require UK agreement, and I think we, we can all form our own ideas on that, but I very much doubt the UK government would do that. Um, your side comment on, on Ireland is is interesting. Uh, what I see of the Irish government diplomacy is it's trying to get on with the UK government as well as with Scottish and Welsh governments, as well as the whole separate structures mm. of the Good Friday Agreement. And it re- recently uh, opened a Consul General office in, in Cardiff, and, and the Irish Consul General um, has been the most active diplomat in, in Scotland in recent years. Um, so I think Ireland plays those, you know, UK is its big neighbour, and it plays that as, as a pretty sophisticated foreign policy, and its ability to help Northern Ireland with Erasmus is different from its ability to help Scotland, unfortunately, with, with Erasmus. And I, I do think it's outrageous, you know, I mean, all of Brexit is outrageous, but you know, we, we saw after 2016, even with Theresa May, there was no effort made to, to try and reconcile the Scottish and Northern Irish votes with the English and Welsh votes. And there was no effort to recognise that that a, a very big majority of younger people voted for the EU and are in favour of the EU. So instead of taking younger people's concerns on board, or at least with something like Erasmus, again, that possibility to at least try and, uh, you know, Smooth some of the rough edges of Brexit. The, the government is talking only to its own supporters.
3: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes. If you if you go, if you think of Irish diplomacy, and I know it's almost a hundred years since they became a state in their own right after a thousand years of fighting against mm. the but they've managed to reduce their trade level with with England. They they talk about England rather than the UK. They've reduced their trade level from 90% in 1922 down to 20%. So that's a whole hell of a difference that they've made. They're very good at, at working on their own right, as I would expect Scots to be when we get the chance to do so. Do you think because of Brexit, Ireland will reunite before Scotland can be independent again?
1: Yeah. Ah. Um,
3: you don't have to answer that if you don't want yeah, to.
1: It's a, it's not impossible. I th- I think um, you know I think the two are very interconnected. Uh, they're they're both very separate. Obviously, you know Northern Ireland, the Good Friday Agreement. There can be a border poll. Um, reunifying with Ireland is is a different and would be done differently to Scotland going independent. Um, but politically, they're, they're very likely to have knock-on effects on each other, uh, whichever goes first. Um, so whichever went first and, and chose to, to leave the UK, I think, would have a, a reinforcing effect on the other. Um, and it's also interesting, you know, if you talk to people across the EU, as I, I do, then, then both tend, tend to come up. Um, I mean, I've done a lot of media in in the last six months. There's been a lot of European media interest in Scottish independence, especially as the polls have shifted. Um, but but uh, yeah, this qu- this question does come up of, of of both, and what will happen to the UK and uh, or the rest of the UK or England and Wales, what you call it, and or or even Welsh independence. So that's not something that people outside the UK I find are speculating on much so far. Um, none of that's a direct answer to my, to my Northern Ireland, Ireland, move first. Um, I think my answer a year ago would have been Scotland's more likely to to move first. Um, a lot of people, as I'm, as I'm sure you mostly are aware, in, in, in Dublin, people have been quite, a lot of people were quite cautious about moving quickly you know, wanting it to be consent on both sides, really understanding what the pros and cons are, the transitions the new constitutional structures, not leaving an alienated unionist minority. You know, a lot of very sophisticated and and deep thinking going on about those issues, much much more so than uh, here on, it's not exact mirror mirror image, but you know, what are our relationships would be with England and Wales? after independence. Um, so it'd be nice to see more work done on that, that too. I think because of the Northern Irish protocol and the way it's, mal- well, it's not malfunctioning, it's functioning as you would expect it to function, which is it's causing a lot of problems and it's causing a hard, a hard border. Um, even, uh, they may be able to do something about this, but even, even the pet passport issue applies for even within the common travel area um you know because of the brexit agreement whether that's that might i mean that that might change the dynamics sooner than than would have been expected otherwise Mm -hmm. um different opinion polls show different things in in northern ireland it might change the dynamics but i think that's very unpredictable and obviously it's very disturbing to see the threats against port staff um in northern ireland Mm -hmm. in the last in the last week. Um, so I, I well, I don't, I don't know, it's my final answer, but those are the things I would speculate about and whether, whether this may all take off faster than, than we expected. But at the moment, that's obviously what seems to be happening here, here as well, you know, whether it's 20 or 22 polls now showing yes, as only since last June. So I, I certainly wouldn't go along with those. Saying it's the settled will of the, the Scottish people. I think you need more than seven months to call it the settled will, but it is looking like a, a watershed move. And, and we'll see what happens, um, you know, with the Salmon Sturgeon row and everything else, whether that dense support ahead of the May election. So it's not meant to be my topic for today, I know. Um, but actually it doesn't, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to be. So and it's interesting to see how the, the media discussion in London is changing as more and more of these independence polls came out and you see more and more a range of commentators in in london saying oh actually boris can't just say no can he well i mean he may well do just do that but a lot of people starting you know influential voices starting to say oh well you can't just keep saying no if that's what people in scotland want so yeah, this this thing could play out slowly it could play out very quickly in, in both
2: yep, I think
1: and I guess it's just a
2: personal comment um, I, I I do get very anxious of the fact that things may go on taking years but in the mm-hmm. years Scotland is going to be absolutely um, damaged well, we'll lose so many jobs, industries will close and um, That I just feel it will be harder and harder and harder to come back from that
1: situation
2: the longer it takes. Hmm. But that's just a personal comment.
1: (laughs) Well, I do think on that, I mean, this is going back to the, the question, sorry, I can't remember by who, but about, you know, what are our countering arguments on the border being bad? But, I mean, I think there's a general political economic point here that we are currently part of a state that chose to do this degree of damage to its economic, political, social, and security and cultural relations all its European allies and partners. And if you're part of a state and a government that's willing to damage its economy to that extent, do you want to stay part of that? Even if there may be some economic costs in the short run, or do you want to get back, and we we may have different views on, on what's a rational economic policy, but do you want to get back to a sort of more rational, economic policy based on a more honest political debate.
3: Um, Florence says, do you feel that England will be excessively vocal about foreigners entering England v Scotland if once not if but once we are independent? And will this be another border problem mm-hmm. for them? Or it'll be another border problem to be answered during a referendum campaign? Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I don't. I don't think it should be such a problem. Um, just because the Common Travel Area already works with Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, uh, that has worked by Ireland, although it's in the EU and therefore has free movement, not being part of the Schengen passport-free, you know, border-free uh, zone. Although, as we've seen with COVID, it's not a completely passport or border-free zone. Our member states have the right to reintroduce borders for, for their health and protection and security and, mm-hmm. and so on um, and so so I think if Scotland if Scotland does stay in in fact stay in the common travel area which would need the rest of UK and Irish agreement but I really can't see why that wouldn't be forthcoming. then you would expect that if it was also joining the EU it would like Ireland ask for a Schengen opt-out and for the same reasons that Ireland got a Schengen opt-out it would get an opt-out from having to be part of the, the border-free, passport-free mm. area. Um, and it would need as a bit as Ireland does to make sure it didn't have such a different migration policy to the rest of the UK that there, that there was an issue. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and I mean, it's, it's early. It's very early days. Well, it's early days since free movement only stopped on the, on the 1st of January. But so far, we haven't seen... Uh, anything much about uh, the media saying, oh, look, people are coming from Ireland who shouldn't come from Ireland. And, Mm -hmm. and of course, what the deal does allow with the EU is that you you can have visa-less travel uh, when we are allowed to travel again from the UK to the EU for up to 90 days out of six months. Is it for tourism and for a rather unfortunately Mm -hmm. restricted number of professional or business reasons? So, you know, people who can come to Ireland for free movement can come onto the UK, but they no longer have a right to live and work here. They have that right to live and work in Ireland, and that would be the same for Scotland. So I think Ireland is very, very helpful here, because uh, if anybody says, oh, look, this could be a problem, well, up till now, we can say it's not at all a problem, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, vis-a-vis Ireland and vis-a-vis the common travel area, and Mm. and it's working. So as long as it's working, we can point to it and say it's working.
3: Yeah, thank you.
2: We we do actually have. Um, Daniels asked me to try and to try and um, actually vocalise this one. It's from it's from Selma, who unfortunately has had to leave. Mm. So I'll do my best. Or you you can see it as well, Kirsty. We need to have answers if we are speaking to people. I suppose is what she's saying. Yeah.
1: I agree. Well, I agree, and of course you do. And, and in case there was any misunderstanding of what I was saying, I, I wasn't saying. that that policy papers are are somehow being leaked to to foreign media and not being published here. What I I did say was that I understand from talking to people here that there are some policy papers uh, that have yet to be published. Now, I'm not completely privy to why they haven't been yet, but I would assume it has quite a lot to do with the pandemic. Um, And that may be fair enough. But obviously, we're now three months or less off, off the election. So something has to happen soon because we need to have democratic elections. And that means being able to to seriously discuss policy. And for activists, that means you, you having advance notice as well mm-hmm. of, of the arguments. Yes. Now it's a little bit, I mean, uh, uh, I'm not taking sides on the, the Andrew Wilson, Richard Murphy where I write this second, but I, I was slightly puzzled to see a Financial Times article by Andrew Wilson a, a week or so ago um saying we we need a more strategic and clear economic policy uh, well i was slightly puzzled was, was because okay you know because he is the author of the growth commission and and yes the world's changed a lot since the growth commission so of course he's quite right you know at one level we we, we need something new um well I, I i thought that was slightly slightly baffling and unless it's a precursor him saying it, and then in another couple of weeks he goes, Oh, hello, I actually haven't had this with policy. I mean, the Growth
2: Commission was pretty much binned Indeed. by um conference a year or so ago, and yet I saw Andrew Wilson in an interview with Andrew Neil for The Spectator in December saying, Oh, yes, you know, we would uh, keep the pound, we would just carry on with that, and after all, we're using the pound with now, just now, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So for us as activists, who I think we're pretty much in the place where we felt we'd be starting our own currency as soon as possible, we don't have answers to any questions at the moment coming up to the election. Now, I know we're not on stalls just now. We can't get out there and talk to people. But I I still think there is a serious need for the public to be starting to see questions about borders, currency, as you say, policy papers. I Mm -hmm. I think it's time.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's important. And I, I think there are sort of answers and, and on all these things. I also think, um, how to put this, I think we have to make sure we have enough points and, and comments on the positive side. Um, you know, what I find, because I, I write so much and talk so much about accession to the EU and could an independent Scotland do it and what would the issue be, be. And then everybody starts talking about deficit and currency. Well, yes, those are issues to discuss and debate. And actually, I think it's fine that there's a range of views on that um, in the independence movement, just as there are you know, outside the independence movement. But it's not a right to rush over the fact that of the about 35 so-called chapters that have to be negotiated and, 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 and aligned with before you can join the EU, Scotland currently meets almost all those criteria. Yeah. You know, um, the UK as an EU member state had a couple of opt outs, had an opt out um, on the euro, obviously, and it had a, an opt in on the justice and home affairs area um, and the Schengen that I already mentioned. Well, that's huge. You know, that's huge for the moment and until we diverge and depending how fast or slowly we diverge from EU regulations and so on. So I think much more needs to be made about that, you know, and especially and it links to the border argument and, and diverging from, from England you say, but actually we're trying to stay with how our, how our economies work at the moment. I mean, not completely in terms of independence, but, you know, we're, we're not trying to destroy our European standards and our, our European connections. I think on that regard, you know, it's funny, the Growth Commission report has come down to an argument about currency. Obviously, it did actually have quite a lot in there about competitiveness and, uh, and other things that I find quite interesting and still relevant on, you know, do we want to be like Denmark or Finland? Can we be like them? And what sort of industrial strategy does that entail? My, my criticism of the Growth Commission at the time was it, that it rather, it rather ignored Europe and the European Union and EU's industrial strategy arguments and made it much more a small state by small state comparison. Um, I think on, on the currency side, I think people need um, some very clear bullet points about, because um, I've seen Andrew Neil sort of say, you cannot join the EU if you're using the pound. And actually I I too made that point when when I wrote um, uh, a blog critiquing the, the Growth Commission, but more for ignoring Europe uh, almost three years ago now. But actually I've come... I've changed my view on that a little bit, partly by talking to people in the EU about the unprecedented nature it would be of using sterling and perhaps wanting a transition period and and that it would be a political decision. And it's not right for either me or Andrew Neil to say it is absolutely impossible. Um, So I think, you know, whether you think Scotland should have its own currency on day one, or whether you think it's fine to take a few years about it and use, use the pound, I think you need to have the arguments there about what, what that would mean for joining the EU. And I think the other thing that's, it's just where we are politically and in terms of public opinion, but because, because people see the Euro as problematic somehow, then in, instead of thinking, well, is, could all this argument be eased if, if we were more positive about joining the Euro, you know, Ireland uses the Euro, um, the discussion tends to be about how we could join the EU while having a, a euro in formal opt out, like not like Denmark, which has a formal one, but like Sweden or, or Poland, because if you don't join to begin with, you can't, you can't be made to join. And you know, I, I wonder if one of the arguments also for defending a Scottish currency is what, what, would, what would the reserves need to be to keep a, a, a relatively fixed exchange rate between the Scottish pound and the euro? Because I think a lot of a lot of the fear I understand it on introducing a Scottish currency is you don't want it to devalue against the pound straight away, because otherwise everything you've said to people about oh you'll defend their pensions and so on could could get threatened. Um, so, and you know I'm not in favour of the the fiscal deficit limits or the way Greece was treated in in the euro crisis. Um, but as I say, I think to some extent in the midst of the COVID crisis, things have moved on for now. Um, and I think I think thinking more about the euro in terms of currency plans is is perhaps something ideally we should do more of. But I don't think that's going to happen probably in the next few months in the run-up to the election.
3: Uh, Marlene says that she was in a meeting with Kate Forbes last week mm. where she made the point that people need to have reassurance about currency. Comes stability immediately after Indy. Mm. So, according to Kate, uh, we'd use sterling, but then a move to her own currency would start ASAP. Marlene says, unfortunately, I didn't get the chance to pin her down to define the ASAP. So it's just a comment. A, yeah. you know, but you know, let's at least it's positivity. Should I think from my point of view? I'm, mm. I'm hearing positivity from a member of the SNP government, and that's that's reassuring.
1: Yeah, and I think it's what I just just said. What you you know, it, um, it doesn't have to take you years and years to introduce a currency, mm-hmm. and and I think uh, you know people like Andrew Wilson are, are, are well aware of that. But it's this, it is this issue of currency stability. I mean, when when the Czechs and Slovaks split up, I, they used the same currency for a little while, and then they decided that didn't work. And I think within about six months, Slovakia had its own currency, but they mm-hmm. then devalued twenty percent against the Czech crown. So. And, and I mean, you know, we're now 27 years later and, and that to them is ancient history. But, at, you know, I, we can't just dismiss it and say it'll be fine in another 10 years' time. Obviously, you've got to take account of, of the sort of divorce agreement you might have with the rest of the UK and how that will impact on things like um, yeah. pension rights and so on. So I, I'm not an expert on the different arguments about currency stability and reserves and so on, but I, I think that that's where... The, a lot of these issues come to. You. Okay.
2: I think, I think so. Um, I personally don't like the idea of nope. the Bank of England being in charge of any money. Might we might require to sure. borrow? I think it would be pretty bitter between the two countries, and um, I really don't want to be relying on the Bank of England. Yeah. Uh, I also heard one quite smart economists say that he reckoned just the fact that Scotland has so much oil, that can be used as a reserve for our currency, that that would back it up. I don't know, because I'm, I'm not an economist. Not
1: sure. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if that's the case anymore, given given where we're getting to in, in fossil fuels. But yeah, I, I share your hesitation uh, about um, using the pound without agreement, without any control. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've seen... You've seen other countries, Montenegro and Kosovo, using the Euro without the agreement of Brussels. And, you know, they're, they're moving rather slowly towards the EU and Kosovo's not even being recognized by Spain and others yet. Um, but, but, you know, the EU hasn't refused to talk to them because they're using Euro. So, so, on the one hand, there's the arguments about the currency and, and exactly how that's done. And then there's the arguments about what it does to the ability to join. The EU and also go to, and I think these things interlink. So going back to what I was saying about not necessarily seeing after or the EEA as a as a sort of halfway house, because the EU will set up a formal association agreement with Scotland very quickly, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now that's part of then Scotland's relationships with the biggest market in, in the world. Um, yeah. And that will impact, it'll be one of the factors that will impact on. Currency and on the putative strength of a, a new currency, but it'll only be will only be one of the factors. But it's not going to be, or it shouldn't be, a, uh, just in my view, you know, an independent Scotland that somehow cut off from the UK market, cut off from the EU market, using the pound without permission. It's going to take ten years to get back into the EU, and you know that's all going to be disastrous for ten years. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think that's the case, but I think, however it's done there is no way getting around the fact that independence involves transitions. You mm-hmm. know, and it will involve a transition into the EU. And I don't think it, it, it doesn't in the end matter if that transition is three years or six years, as long as we have some decent agreement with them for trade And in mm-hmm. the meantime. And and in a way, the same for, for leaving the UK. Of course, if, if, if your aim is independence, you don't then want to have things run by the UK. But you're always going to have we're on the same island we're going to have to do a lot of things together mm-hmm. and as we unwind things um there will be transitional in in between deals and some of them different people will be happier or more unhappy happy with you know uh, yeah. as they come but i think i think it might help if we if we use that transition word now people are used to the concept of transition because of brexit even though it was unfortunately short and b- badly handled but there are you know there are good transitions you you know you're not going to have a fully fledged diplomatic service with embassies all around the world on day one you don't need that you know you need your transition strategy for how you build that up you're not going to suddenly switch your trade from the uk to to the eu in in one year um Hopefully what you are going to do um, maybe even before you divorce is have an agreement on Scottish UK services trade you know so we need to have an idea of some of the key components of services yes. and and which ones can happen quickly which ones more slowly what the options are on on those and and it's you know and it's going to be negotiation with the EU as well as with with the UK and and then when you finally get to a more settled state um, Will be over a period of time and not just on currency, on lots of things. Okay. Absolutely, I don't relish that. <laughs> I don't relish those uh, those
2: negotiations.
3: Okay, um, Florence, uh, Florence Sinclair asks or says, "Self determination is about a great deal more than economics. It's about the way that we want to go forward with our nation." Mm-hmm. Uh, and well-being, what do you feel about this, giving this a much higher profile? Mm-hmm. Uh, economics is critically important, we know, but we're just looking at uh, how else do we take the nation forward.
1: Yes, I mean, I, I do think that's, that's right. And when, when I'm talking to people from other European countries and they, and they say, oh, you know, is there a majority in Scotland for, for independence now because of Brexit and COVID? And, and I tend to say, well, that's tipped it over the 50%, but remember there was 45% in 2014 and it was about self-determination and it was about democracy. Yeah. Um, and that that's perfectly valid and reasonable in its own, own right. And I think this goes back to what I was saying near the start of my my talk, that, that, that there is much more, well, there, there's varying degrees of understanding across the EU, but certainly in some quarters there's much more understanding now where some people were puzzled, six or seven years ago um, yes. as, as to why you'd want to leave the UK. It's a big EU member state. what well, you, know, you know, can't you just have a bit more devolution? And, and now people see that. Um, and I, you know, I know not everybody who supports independence supports being in the EU, but the majority do. And I think talking more about wanting to work with our European partners and wanting to have a say in Europe um, can also be a positive part part of that. And especially if we explain to people why, you know, we may only have, if, if we were an EU member state like Denmark or Ireland, we'd only have a small percentage of the votes. But to talk about how these different countries work together, I mean, Ireland, going back to Ireland's foreign policy, Ireland was not only obviously very influential in, in explaining its interests and concerns about the Irish border and the Brexit talk, but it's it's had a, uh, much wider foreign policy global Ireland initiative in the last few years, and and it's put a lot of effort into developing its relationship with key EU member states. I had somebody in Berlin recently say to me, "Well, I think Ireland is is probably the most important small country, or has the best small country relationship with Germany at the moment of any other EU member states." So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's probably getting too too specific and European because that's my default default area, but I, I think, yes, I think, you know, to me, democracy is extremely important. And that's why I was concerned both about the European economic area, about the ideas of soft Brexit. I, it, democracy is about having control and not not giving up power and, and necessarily holding power to to account and making your own choices. And I think in the face of Brexit and this this sort of irrational and ideological government in London, it's not just about the static Costs and benefits economically of being in that union. It's about having a chance to, to take rational, rational self control. Yes. So I, I do think there's lots that could be done there. Thank you very much. And we are living in extraordinary times. Unfortunately, a lot of negative extraordinary times that it means, you know, Absolutely. we may be on the cusp of very different change, including positive change, hopefully.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by Pensioners for Independence was a meeting arranged by the Edinburgh and Lothian's Pensioner for Independence group with Dr Kirsty Hughes, the director of the Scottish Centre on European Relations. If you're interested in listening to more of Pensioners for Independence podcasts, please visit our website at www.pensionersforindependence.scot where you can listen to all our podcasts and also find out what's going on in our local groups and please sign up for more information if you'd like to do that.